John chapter 2, please. John chapter 2. You know, I had intended to get back into our James series this morning and uh, was working on James chapter 4, but for some reason I just I could not get peace and couldn't quite get that the way I wanted it, and so I decided to try something else. I wasn't real sure why, but as I've listened to the music this morning and the direction this service has gone, I think I understand a little bit about maybe what the Lord's doing here. John chapter 2. And let's start reading in verse number 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Heavenly Father, I pray that for these remaining minutes that you help our minds and hearts to concentrate on your word. I pray you'd give us ears to hear today. And I pray you'd fill me with your spirit. Forgive me, Father, for anything that would hinder my usefulness today and help me uh, to just be your instrument. And I pray that you'll be the speaker today. I pray, Lord, that uh, nothing will be said here that uh, Father shouldn't be. And that anything that uh, needs said will be said boldly and plainly and clearly and uh, accurately. Bless the message. And bless each person who is here hearing pray, Father, if there are those who need something specific from this, they'll receive it today. Help us. Teach us. Change us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, we rejoiced with Paul and Christine as they celebrated their wedding. Uh, We attended a wedding. And here in John chapter 2, we see that Mary and Jesus and his disciples did the same. They attended a wedding, and it would be instructive for us this morning in looking at that passage to just consider what it has to say about marriage. There's certainly some implications there for marriage, things we could glean about marriage from the fact that Jesus was there and his blessing was on that proceeding. But I'm not going to do that today because I don't think, really, marriage is the key thought in this passage. If we were studying the life of Christ, uh, we would say that this passage was important because it does describe a milestone in the life of Christ, and that was his first miracle. His first miracle, recorded miracle anyway, was performed here at Cana of Galilee uh, in his making water or wine from water at this wedding. But I don't want to go in that direction either because there's something here that I think is of, of great interest. It always jumps out at me whenever I read this story, and uh, it has jumped out at me again, and uh, I want to I share it with you today. And I, I see it in the words of Mary. Mary here spoke, I think, preached two very wonderful sermons in this passage. Uh, Very, very short ones. You probably wish that uh, I preached quite this short. She only spoke 11 words. Wouldn't that be something? If you could preach a sermon with such eloquence in 11 words, 
And it's recorded in two verses, two sentences. Verse number three, the first one was, they have no wine. Verse number five, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. I want to just for a few minutes this morning unpack those two sentences and see if you see what I see in them. Two very important truths for us this morning. Think first of all about that phrase, they have no wine, in verse number three. Now, the text here obviously indicates to us that Mary was at this wedding. Uh, it seems to indicate that Mary was the one who was invited to the wedding. And some folks seem to think that the way it's worded there, Jesus and his disciples then kind of came as an afterthought or at her prompting or something like that. They seem to have been possibly invited later. I don't know if we could be dogmatic about that. But some infer from that 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 means that Mary was probably some kind of a personal friend of the wedding party. And uh, Jesus and the disciples then came later. It's interesting, isn't it, that Joseph's name is not mentioned. There's no mention here of Joseph. And that's a pretty conclusive uh, indication that Joseph was probably dead uh, by this time. But Mary was there, and Jesus was there, and the disciples were there. And so they're all there at this wonderfully festive occasion, and the problem arises. And the problem is, as we quite clearly see in the text, that they ran out of wine. Might not seem like that big of a deal, but it was actually a social disgrace, and it was not a good thing, and uh, it would have had serious repercussions, perhaps, for the reputations of the bride and the groom. Now, we could come up with all kinds of possible reasons why they ran out of wine. Uh, maybe, maybe they were just simply poor. Maybe they couldn't afford very much wine. I mean, that's one possibility, and maybe if we give them the benefit of the doubt, that's the one we might rest on. It's also possible that if Jesus and his disciples were kind of an afterthought, that they inflated the roster and there just simply weren't enough, weren't enough uh, provisions there for this crowd that had come in. That's possible, too. And it's also possible that they were just simply poor planners and had just not thought the thing through. But we actually do know the real reason, don't we? It's in verse number 11. The, the verse number 11 tells us this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The real reason was that Jesus might show forth his glory and that the disciples might believe. And so we think about that and we realize that in God's economy, absolutely nothing happens by accident. This thing, which might seem like such a little thing, was actually planned by God well in advance. And it was used by God to demonstrate the glory of the Savior and to help others to believe in him. I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging. Do you find that encouraging? Amen. When difficulties come our way, even the little niggling nits that come our way that drive us so crazy sometimes, the problems that come up in life, it may well be that God has planned that in advance, is using that difficulty to teach you, is using that difficulty to make himself known to you, or even to bring you or others to him. There's so many examples of that in the Bible. We could spend so much time on that. The one that always comes to mind is the story of Joseph. Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. And Brother Mark has been talking about this in his Sunday school class and, and uh, Sunday mornings. Here's Joseph. goes out to, to meet with his brothers, and they cast him into a pit. And as Alistair Begg says, after they've cast him into the pit, they sit down and eat a sandwich. They're just, they have no concern whatsoever for him, and they sell him into slavery. And he goes into slavery, and he ends up, for no fault of his own, getting thrown into prison and spending a good portion of his life as a slave and in prison for absolutely nothing that he did wrong. And yet later on in his life, when he's talking to his brothers, he would say to them, As for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto, unto good. God knew all along. God planned it all along. God was in control all along. And so they had this problem. 
It was a problem that God had put there so that Jesus might be glorified. But nonetheless, to them it was a problem. And they had no wine. And then Mary brought it up to Jesus. Don't you think that's interesting? Mary goes to Jesus and says they have no wine. Now, what was he supposed to do about it? You, you wonder what she was thinking there and why she would have approached Jesus in the first place and said they have no wine. I, I think the most obvious implication is she thought he could do something about it. She expected him to do something about it. She was aware, at least in some way, that he had some ability here. We are aware of no miracles that Jesus had performed prior to this one. We have no documented evidence. The scripture is silent about any miracles prior to this one. There are some apocryphal texts which mention some legends about Jesus when he was young. But uh, they are just stories. There, there's no, uh, there's no uh, evidence that we can trust those documents. They're not trustworthy. And so we don't give them a lot of weight. But, but nonetheless, our imaginations go crazy, don't they? I mean, imagine what it must have been like to have been in the house with Mary and Jesus. Were there miracles? I don't know. What was it like to have that kid running around in the house? And if there were no miracles, were there conversations? Did Jesus and Mary talk? Surely they must have. And so for some reason here, Mary believes that Jesus has the ability to do something here. Clearly, I think the implication is she knew who he was and believed he could do something miraculous about this wine problem. But beyond that, I think her words might speak to a greater thing. I think there might be a greater lesson here. I think she was describing a simple problem, but I think there was a deeper meaning. You know, we just observed the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And every time we do that, we say that the bread represents his broken body, and we say that the juice, the wine, represents his blood. And we see that in other places in Scripture as well. And I wonder, I wonder if what was being said here, they have no wine was not only speaking about this immediate need at the wedding, but also was looking forward to a greater need, or maybe looking around to a greater need. All are lost in sin and unable to do anything about it. They have no wine. All need the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can solve that problem. Here's how one person put it. He said, it may well be that by some mysterious association of ideas, the brief but poignant words of his mother, they have no wine, expressing her sensitive concern for the distress of their host, suggested to Jesus the much deeper need of humanity that he had come to earth to satisfy. It was because men had no wine, because they had no inherent strength to save themselves from the dire predicament in which they stood as sinners, that Jesus was destined, in Isaiah's words, to tread the wine press alone and pour out the wine of his most precious blood. I don't know. I don't know how far we could go with that, but I think it's a valid thought. Jesus knew they had no wine. The old water of Judaism couldn't save the souls of men and women. They needed the Savior, and he was the Savior. You notice Jesus used that phrase, my hour has not yet come, when he answered her. And every single place that we see that used in the New Testament, it is referring to the hour of his death. And so here he is in the midst of revelry and celebration, and his mind is on the cross. He is thinking about those things. Here, at the very beginning of his ministry, his goal is the completion of it. He came to seek and save the lost. And his every word, his every thought, his every action is related to that ministry. They have no wine. It was true then, and it's true today. 
Apart from the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no salvation for mankind. There is no hope. They have no wine. Only when Jesus changed the water to wine was their need met. Their bodies, their minds, their souls were refreshed. Their joy was made complete. They have no wine. Think about it this morning. Only in Jesus Christ can you find the solution to your need. He alone can save and make us whole. He alone can quench the thirst of our soul. And so here at the very beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, at the scene of his first miracle, we see the very reason he came. The great need of mankind. They have no wine. They're sinners in all the religion in the world. And that was symbolized in the water pots. All the religion in the world couldn't save them. They're sinners. And only the blood of Jesus Christ, symbolized by the wine, could. They have no wine. She said something else. She said a second sentence. She said, whatever he says to you, do it. I mentioned a minute ago that she preached uh, an eloquent sermon here of two sentences in 11 words. And that first point was the first four words. That's interesting. But you know this second point, this last seven words, I think is the... The, the, the most powerful that she said. Whatever he says to you, do it. I think in those seven simple words, we might have the simplest and best sermon anywhere in the New Testament about what it means to live the Christian life. Whatever he says to you, do it. How do you improve upon that? That is a tremendous truth. Whatever he says to you, do it. The servants listened to her words. And they obeyed. And he said, fill the pots with water. And they obeyed. Probably thinking to themselves, this guy is a complete loon. We asked for water or wine, and he's given us water. But he said, fill it with water, and so they did. He said, draw some and take it to the master of the feast, and they obeyed. Probably fearing the whole way as they walked as to what is he going to say when he asked for wine, and I hand them water. But they obeyed, and they saw an amazing result. Now think about this. They knew it was water when they had put it in the pot. They knew that they and they alone had touched it. Jesus never touched it. And they knew that they had drawn water from the pots and that it was water when they drew it. And then they saw when they poured it into the governor's cup, it was wine. Jesus had not physically touched it, but had nonetheless miraculously created wine from water. And the disciples believed. And that was the whole point. The disciples believed. That's what verse 11 says. And by the way, that's the key to the whole book of John. You want to know why John wrote the book of John? That's why he said he wrote it. John chapter 20 and verse number 30. Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. They believed. Oh, that people today would listen to and obey the Savior. That's such, so much the, the crux of it all. There's a song that we sing all the time. Maybe we ought to sing this for our invitation today. Trust and obey. We sing that song all the time. I read about how that song came to be. It came to be during an a, uh, evangelistic campaign with D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was preaching, and there was a part during this service somewhere where there was a testimony service, and a young man stood up, and he knew very little doctrine. He knew very little theology. He stammered and, st- and, and sputtered around in, the, in, the, in front of everybody and didn't know what to say. And finally he said, I don't know much, but I know I'm going to trust, and I know I'm going to obey. And there was a songwriter in the group that took those words and wrote it down. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to 
be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. That's the simple truth Mary was conveying in her words. Whatsoever he says to you, do it. James said the same thing in our little study that we've been going through on James. We, we read this quite a while back in James chapter 1 and verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Whatever he says to you, do it. Samuel said the same thing to Saul when he said to him one day, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Whatever he says to you, do it. He said one time to Abraham, I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your family. I want you to start walking to a land which I'll eventually get around telling you about. And now Abraham could have said, what? I don't understand that. And if I understand it, I'll obey. But until I understand it, I'm not going to obey. That's the way many of us would have responded. But no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Whatever he says to you, do it. Later on, God said to Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham was 100 years old. Is anybody in the room here this morning 100 years old? Some of you might be close. I don't know. If God were to say to you, today you're going to have a son, would you have a little difficulty with that? I think most of us probably would. If he said it to me, I'm 55, I'd have great difficulty with that. And yet, Abraham believed and obeyed. And then later, after that wonderful miracle, God said to him, after the son had been born, God said to him, I want you to take now that son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, I want you to take him to a, a Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him there as a sacrifice to me. I saw a movie about this one time. And in this, I don't remember which one of the Bible movies this was, but in this particular movie, that scene was depicted with Abraham being very upset and screaming and and uh, shaking his fist at God and very upset about this fact and questioning God until finally he acquiesced. That's not what the Bible says happens. What the Bible said happened is that he just simply took his son and, and obeyed. Whatever he says to you, do it. God said to Gideon one time, he said, I want you to go and lead my people against the Midianites. The Midianites were spread out across the valley like a horde. And uh, Midian, or Gideon was a little bit of a cowardly guy, not the bravest of men. But after he prayed and talked to God a bit, he decided to go ahead and obey, and he mustered an army, 32,000 men. God said, great, Gideon. Just one thing, that's too many men. He said, tell every one of them who's afraid to go home. 22,000 of them were afraid. And so 22,000 of his 32,000 went home. Gideon could have at that time said, I don't, I don't think so, but he was still willing to go. And he started off, and God said, wait a minute, Gideon. Still got too many men. Tommy was done whittling them down. He had 300 men left. And now most of us would have looked at the, the, the massive army of the Midianites and said, God, this is just not going to work. But no, God had said to go. And he did. He obeyed, not understanding in the least, I'm sure. And God wrought a mighty victory through those 300 men. Whatever he says to you, do it. Do it. Mary was no stranger to this concept. Mary had one day been just minding her own business when an angel appeared, and she was told that as a virgin she was going to get pregnant and bear a son. And she could have said, what? I don't think so. She could have said, you know what, I'll be a social disgrace. I'll be an outcast. My husband Joseph will hate me. She could have said no. But instead, you know what the Bible says she said? Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Whatever he says to you, do it. You see, it doesn't matter whether you understand it 
or I understand it. We need to just do it. Someday we will understand. It doesn't matter whether it makes sense to us now. Oftentimes what God asks of us won't. We just need to do it. Someday it will make sense. It doesn't matter what others think. Many of these people had to deal with the fact that others thought they were complete nuts for obeying the Lord. Just do it. The only opinion that matters is his. It doesn't matter what the culture of the day says. Just do it. When God says one thing and our culture says another, which are we supposed to follow? We're supposed to follow God. Always God's way. Just do it. It doesn't matter if you're the only one doing it. Elijah thought he was. He's wrong, but he thought he was. But even if we are, just do it. We need to be like Paul who said, let God be true and every man a liar. We need to be like Elijah who, believing he was the last man standing, yet obeyed. Whatever he says to you. Do it. And now it's important that we understand something. When this happened here, Mary and Jesus were communicating and the servants were communicating verbally. They were speaking to each other. We don't have that today. Jesus doesn't speak to us verbally. He speaks to us through this. And so I don't think that we would do the slightest disservice to this passage of Scripture to change that a little bit, to change Mary's words, her little sermon to us just a little bit. I think it could be respoken as whatever he has said in his word, do it. I think that would be correct and accurate. And just as the servants saw miraculous results when they obeyed, so too will we. And just as the disciples believed when the servants obeyed, so too will others believe. I think the best soul winners are those who with a full heart and an open heart believe and obey what the Bible says. So there's no rocket science here, is there? Mary didn't preach some great deep theology. But boy, what she said was important, wasn't it? They have no wine. Whatever he says to you, do it. Which of those two statements applies to you this morning? Perhaps you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Perhaps you've never thought of him as the only one who can meet your needs, solve your problems, heal you of all your diseases, cleanse you of every stain, forgive you of every sin. Perhaps you're not a believer. You have no wine. You need to trust him today. Salvation is found in no other. No other. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. They have no wine. Or perhaps those seven words, whatever he says to you, do it. Maybe those speak to you today. Simplest way we can think of to explain how we should live as followers of Christ. Read the Bible and do what it says. Whatsoever he says to you, do it. Maybe some need to be asking this morning, how am I doing on that one? How am I doing on this matter of obedience? Maybe the Lord this morning is pointing out areas of life where you're struggling with that. Where you need to talk to him. You can fix that this morning too. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Determine this morning. Determine this morning that you're going to see in Jesus the only way. And he's the one that you're going to obey.